Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill, to the first inaugural episode. I'm Mr. V. I'm Mr. Copeland. And we kind of wanted to create something for you students out there that want to learn a little bit more about history and current events. Yeah, I think we spoke about this for a while. What's another platform that we can use to further engage our students and give them another resource where they want to go the extra mile, dive a little bit deeper into some topics, and uh, spend more time than we can in class on some things that are pretty interesting. Absolutely. And we kind of together thought about the best, most present topic, which is on pretty much everyone's minds, is this idea of partisanship. Yeah, it's an issue right now that's very present in our country, not just in our politics, but in our communities, how we engage with one another, how we engage with our families and our communities. So today's objective is to understand the psychological factors that contribute to the divide among Americans today. All right, let's get it. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savages. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So, partisanship, I think it needs some defining, actually. It's the idea that you are loyal to one party, and in the context of politics, uh, either Democrats or Republicans. Yes, modern-day politics, you know, that your loyalty doesn't reside always with the truth that you're more interested in sometimes winning than finding the truth. And it sometimes gets a little bit more intense in any two-party system in any country. And it's not to say that we've never had uh, tension between these two political parties before. Yeah, we've had civil war for God's sake. But we've noticed, yeah, right, yeah, we've noticed that it's, it's getting um, increasingly more tense over the past, I'd say, 20 to 30 years, you yeah, say? Yeah, definitely. And, and the fact that... Um, who we are as people, who our identity is, sometimes gets too closely associated with these political parties. And you know, like I feel like social media has a lot to do with it. Um, you yep. know, with with all the the Twitter that you can retweet, uh, tw- you know, any any type of response. Yeah, and and, and you know, the internet is a wonderful thing because you have information available to you, but you also have bad information available to you. And when people think differently, sometimes we get stuck in these echo chambers that Twitter really exacerbates, which is I only follow people that think like me, that support the same ideas that I think, so all my information that I, that I receive is from the same type of source. And the result is an increased fervent loyalty to your respective party and some blind spots that we begin to develop uh, for the other. Definitely. Yeah, and another cause of the partisanship in our country right now, I think, is competition. And although sometimes competition is looked at as a great thing, I think it can contribute to it. Really? You know, it's, it's part of our American culture. It's, you know, as some ways, um, as American as apple pie competition. But I think it has some uh, ways in which it makes this problem worse. It's interesting that you're saying that because you're a football coach. Your type of people would want to value competition. In fact, doesn't it like provide an environment where excellence is elevated? Like, don't, wouldn't you want competition? 
This is true. I, you're right. That's a good point. I, I think the iron sharp sharpens iron type of thought process where, you know, two men competing against another brings the best out of someone. I agree with that. But that's a, a very individual type of competition. What I'm concerned with is when you're competing all the time, you look at everyone as an adversary. And instead of your community being, hey, we're all in this together, sometimes competition can go too far. There's a tendency to not recognize the humanity of the opposing side. And when we only look at each other as two competing teams permanently, never having anything in common, that can be uh, drive us to the point of insanity where we're constantly um, going up against each other and nothing productive is accomplished. That kind of reminds me of a story that happened uh, to me in college. How long ago was that? Ten years ago? Yeah, well, I guess uh, way back in 2007, to almost, be exact. Almost, yeah. Um, so I was in uh, Boston College, and uh, I'm not a big sports fan, as you know. You are not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, but uh, a few of my buddies who are Boston locals, they invited me to go watch the uh, Red Sox game. Um, I don't I even know who they played. What, but it kind, was, what type of game was it? It was the World Series. Oh, really? Just a regular old game? <laughs> you know, just, uh, and we couldn't afford tickets. So we went to the, uh, who knows, down in Kenmore Square, which for you listening, it's pretty much Boston's version of Times Square. Yeah, it's, it's basically five different roadways converging in one square where everyone can kind of meet up for a dinner. And what's so close to it? It's about like 100 meters from Fenway Park, which yes. is the uh, park where they played. Yeah. But the point of the story is I'm like eating at Uno's with my friends and uh, the Red Sox about to win for the second time since I believe 2004 yeah their first time in 86 years I think was 2004 so the the waitress starts taking away our utensils and taking away glass mugs and I, I told her I was like listen we're not even done yet and she said oh well the Red Sox are about to win the World Series and we don't want anyone to use this as weapons I thought that was the most bizarre thing <laughs> And um, naive, absolutely. <laughs> and when we ordered it, we finished the check. I walked outside and I witnessed the ninth circle of hell. What were you seeing? I saw fans not only beating up other fans, <laughs> but like destroying property. I think I saw something on TV where they like flipping cars and stuff. Yeah, it was oh insane. Uh, the, the police came in with the, the paddy wagon and tying them up with little zip ties because they didn't have enough handcuffs to go around. Oh, wow. and, the, and I was like stunned. It's just a game. The amount of insanity, yeah. the amount of fervor that it took. And they won. Yeah, they that's, won. that's a positive outburst. <laughs> that was a positive. And my, my friends thought it was the most natural thing, normal thing ever. Yeah. So I, I'm just kind of a little confused as to why was there so much unbridled violence that yeah. Red Sox were destroying their own property and they were hurting people. Yeah. That's yeah. what got to me. It can be shocking. I, I luckily have never been there firsthand for something quite like that. But I think you have to look at it, the Red Sox fans' perspective. As I mentioned a little while ago, you know, they had not won a championship in 86 years. And here in New York, we've got two teams in every professional sport. So it's a little bit different. But there, they only have one. And the Red Sox was such a huge part of their culture that families, generations of families had supported the Red Sox and rooted for the Red Sox and watched them break their, the, the fans' hearts every year. And so they win in 2004, and they were thinking another 86 years until okay. another championship comes. And then only four years later, here we are winning again. So they, this emotion is just you know, pouring out of them. They don't know how to control themselves. You know, it's this unbelievable feeling like I cannot imagine. My, my grandfather waited 80 years Right. And I get two in four years. This is incredible. It's beyond a fluke. Yes. And, and 
you have to understand also that, you know, the Red Sox were always going against the Yankees for so long. The Yankees have won 25-plus championships at this time. And, you know, the Red Sox were part of the identity of Boston. You know, think about it. New York, this giant metropolis a few hours south of Boston, there's this inferiority complex sometimes for Bostonians. So the Red Sox finally winning was a huge part of their identity as the city. So much so that they had been watching for years. You know, there were many people the day after they won that were making trips out to the cemetery to put up the championship banners on their father's or parents' headstones. And I understand, and there's something noble about that type of loyalty, but like when I was in Boston, it got to the point where I couldn't even say I'm from New York. Yeah. You know what I mean? Especially during baseball season. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to introduce myself at UMass, you know, hi, I'm Chris, but uh, don't worry, I'm a Mets fan, <laughs> even though I'm from New York. You know, so, um, you know, it, it, the adversarial nature of sports can go a little far, but it explains something else about the people. We can draw the parallels here. I mean, if people can be this violent over a game or any game, then it, and it's easy to see uh, that passion transcend into politics today. Yeah, I mean, you have conservatives and liberals now, but, you know, Red Sox-Yankees is a rivalry, but you can also pull that all across the country. You have Duke versus North Carolina when it comes to basketball, even here on Long Island. We have St. Anthony Shamanat. The Hatred is a strong word for it. You don't want to quite go there, but there's a strong dislike of the other team. So in a way, conservatives and liberals have now become sports teams of sure. how you know, we are so much interested in our team winning, winning is everything. in elections. Yeah. The, the division in politics is something that we need to be careful with. Now, the, uh, I briefly mentioned it before, it becoming too much of a part of our identity, just like sports can sometimes happen. And that is something that when it's entrenched in us and we don't see what we have in common with the other person, that can cause a problem. We're losing a connection of people within our own communities. As a result, we're kind of clinging on to some need to support a team. Yeah, and and we're looking at what divides us instead of what brings us together. And we all recognize this as inherently problematic. And... You know, everyone in the media always talks about bipartisan solutions, whether it's on health care, whether it's on tax reform. Um, but I don't really think anyone has really given you students any sort of scholarship addressed to the root cause. Yeah, why, why is it that we act this way? So Mr. Copeland and I, um, we did some research, and today we're going to actually try to give you some sort of um, substantiated um, scholarship to back up what we're saying. As we were reading and researching, we came across a man named Jonathan Haidt. He is a social psychologist specializing in the psychology of morality. Yeah, I mean, um, he worked at the University of Virginia. He currently works at NYU. And it was a, a study that he did that was not just about modern time. It was cross-cultural and cross-generational. Right, so he had to start from somewhere. And the, the best place that he wanted to start was like way, way back uh, during the caveman times. And he suggests, along with another slew of uh, scholars, is that we are pre-wired to have a map of morality. He calls it like a first draft. We as humans developed this map through our experiences. And he basically came to the conclusion that there are a total of five fundamental components that make up morality for us today. Yeah. So what the first component, he would he would title it as harm slash care. And he believed that we developed this capacity um, in our experience of being nursed by our mother, 
uh, the level of intimacy develops our capacity to care for other human beings, and that eventually kind of um, you know, evolved throughout the time. So the, the, the idea of caring for the vulnerable in order to prolong the species, uh, eventually it's going to you know, go on. Through throw time. Yeah, you start with your immediate family. Right. And then you have all your relatives, you know, a larger family structure. It builds into the clan. Now we're going to look after the tribe. And then gradually we move into nation states. You know, so there are some modern day examples probably that we could think of. One that comes into my mind is uh, probably babysitting. Okay. You know, just think about, you know, if your parents didn't care about you or were not necessarily concerned about uh, your well-being, they when they left you alone, unattended, they wouldn't require an adult to be there. There's an entire industry for young people getting their first jobs. A lot of you probably have your first jobs uh, getting some money babysitting a neighbor or a family member. And it's based on the parental need to care for their young if they're going out like somewhere. Of course. Yeah, but right. alternatively, what about basic nursing homes? You know, like that kind of taps into uh, you know, our care foundation. Yeah, too. both vulnerable populations, the young and the elderly. Yeah, so... Um, that's the first topic that he came up with, the first component. And the second one I thought was pretty interesting was the fairness and reciprocity uh, aspect of this. This uh, fundamental component where our experience in organized societies was that over time, in order to survive, we required cooperation. And, you know, individuals couldn't just be part of a society if they were only going to take, take, take. You know, if I'm going to do something for you, I'm going to expect that I am reciprocated right. in return. If you uh, allow me to help you, but then I don't ever get anything in return for you, I'm gonna feel taken advantage of, and that's not fair. Yeah, and nobody, that's a human instinct. You don't wanna feel like you've been scammed. Right. You don't wanna feel like you got the bad end of a deal. So we as humans quickly learned, um, we couldn't take, 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 we couldn't give, 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 but we need to be fair and simply reciprocate behavior. And he would call this tit for tat. You know, if everyone acted you know, as Jesus taught us with the golden golden rule, we wouldn't necessarily have an issue. There would be pure fairness all the time. But that's obviously not the case in society. I forgot what it was called, but I believe it's something to do with Tom Brady and a football. Oh, called, uh, you're talking the, about the Flake Gate? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, well, the New England Patriots in general, horrific organization. They are probably one of the scummiest organizations in sports. Uh, but going beyond that... <laughs> Uh, the Deflategate scandal, for those of you that are not familiar, basically the New England Patriots got accused of deflating footballs to somehow gain an advantage in a game. You know, and there's still not necessarily evidence that they actually did it, but because everybody ran with the story of the, the Patriots possibly cheating, that this was such a scandal, it was all over the, the news networks for a while, especially the sports news networks. The, you know, Deflategate scandal, the reason why it's such a controversy was because an understanding in all sports games is that we're on a level playing field. And you know, I guess on a positive note, if there's such an outrage over sports and, and the minor offenses within them, uh, we should be able, theoretically, to apply this to our daily lives. So there's a little light, like silver lining. In oh, all for this. sure. So the third component that uh, John Haidt uh, has uh, characterized as part of the foundational aspects of our morality is called in-group slash loyalty. Uh, he basically posits that our experience of surviving within our tribe showed us the value of being in a group. Humans are identified no, not so much as what we are, but what we are not. Mm -hmm. And um, that basically is measured by how much involved you are in your respective group. I mean, think of it this way. Uh, in order for the ancestors to keep the group intact, members that left or betrayed their clan were villainized and sometimes punished. 
and those who defended or sacrificed for their clan were glorified. I mean, who do we hold up more than anyone else? You know, on Memorial Day, we have an entire holiday for those that are going to lay down their lives for our country. Loyal you know, to, the, to the, our country. Who's United loyal States. to our country? It's but right. it's even, there's some ancient examples to that. I mean, like, one of the most well-read books on the planet is the Bible. And yeah. no one's worse than the great betrayer of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. Judas. Jesus. You know? Um, even if you look at it from another, another sports analogy, LeBron James. Yeah, LeBron James in 2010 uh, made a decision that a lot of people viewed as disloyal and he was vilified for. You know, so he's someone that, if you're not familiar, um, he was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2003. And he had been, you know, pumped up in the media as the second coming of Michael Jordan, the next big thing, the next superstar in, in basketball. And he ended up, you know, pretty much living up to the billing. But for the first seven years of his career, he did not win a championship. And there was a lot of pressure on him to win. And he became a free agent. And he decided to leave Cleveland, someone that was born in Akron, Ohio, Cleveland kid, very close. They viewed him, Cleveland sports fans, viewed him as their savior. He was going to take them from the depths of the NBA and finally bring the city of Cleveland a championship, which has not had one for nearly 80 years. And then he chose in 2010 not to be loyal to the group, but to move on and be loyal to himself, to look out for his own self-interest. And that was go to a team that had a better chance of winning. Right. He moves down to Miami to play with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. They all come together to create this really uh, incredible team that ended up winning two championships. But he was vilified probably more than any uh, athlete in modern day simply because of his lack of loyalty. Because he moved on and did what was best for him and did not do what was best for his group. You know, And that's the third component to Heights research. But the fourth, which is really important to in today's society especially is this concept of authority versus respect and our experience being within an organized group in society is that clear leaders need to emerge valuing authority is important to the success of that structure yeah it need not be evil or bad for example like our republic today we voluntarily defer to representatives to make laws for us yeah i'm not saying authority is a negative thing what he tried to talk about was the need to respect authority and the level in which each individual believed in that being very important helps determine your morality. You know, the relationship that we have uh, within the power dynamic in our society is important. And every person has a different way of perceiving authority, you know, in terms of who should have it and how they should use it. But if no one respected authority at all, we would be in chaos. And so the fifth and final component of John Haight's theory on the foundations of our morality is what he would call purity and sanctity foundation. And it's based on our uh, ancestral experience of witnessing poor actions, such as hygiene or social action. Um, And as a result of this, we created a rigid code of behavior based on what is deemed acceptable and what is not. Uh, What should the tribe encourage? What should the tribe discourage to prolong our species? All right, so like... If I do something, I look around and the rest of the community is looking at me shaking their heads. It's because I've kind of not been following the rules appropriately. Yeah, if you're rolling around in the dirt and, and muck and mire the whole day and you're not showering and you're not taking care of yourself, like that's going to uh, increase the likelihood of a, a contracting a disease. Yeah, there's and a reason behind on it. On some level, you have to keep good hygiene in order for us to kind of prolong the you know, species. So because you're worried about how others will view you. Absolutely. It shapes your behavior. Right. I mean, uh, for... It's kind of like peer pressure. Exactly. On an ancient level, I mean, 
um, they learned quickly that you would have to separate the living from the dead. So there, there are countless of different rituals throughout the world. What do you mean separate? Separate, like literally separate the dead from the living. And they would do like a lot of burial rituals. Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. there, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's codes, there's rules. Like you have to, you know, there's a certain amount of feet that you have to bury them. You have to be buried away from the respective community. Okay. And I think outside it, the city walls, outside the six city feet walls, under, six feet yeah. under, there has yeah. to be an amount of ointments that is, uh, you know, used in order to kind of cleanse mm-hmm. the dead. And this whole idea, of course, has religious connotations, but it's also because they wanted to prevent, the, to, to protect the group. To protect the group. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So that that pretty much wraps up the five components that John Haidt, um, you know, has come up with on what makes up our moral map, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we get back to the break, we're gonna talk a little bit about how we can apply this map into our society today. All right, welcome back to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Culpin. I'm Mr. V. All right, and if you've been with us this far, you know we're talking about Jonathan Haidt and his um, research about our morals and the psychology that plays into them. So part of how we came up with this, uh, we just thought it was important to go over, was not just research himself, but he actually came up with a survey. And the results help us apply it to today's life. In terms of partisanship. And you can actually go on the website at yourmorals.org you're interested in kind of like figuring out where do you kind of stand on the divide. Mm -hmm. Um, And through all this survey and this results, he basically, to kind of make it easier to explain, he categorized people into two main groups. Yeah, basically, as they're taking the survey, um, going through, they were able to find that people that tended to be to the left on the political spectrum were a little bit more open to new experiences versus people on the right we're emphasizing tradition. And that kind of played out throughout all of their answers. And based on this uh, survey, he kind of was able to plot where people's moral foundations lie and how they are inherently different based mm-hmm. on the five components that we talked about in the first half of this podcast. So uh, we kind of want you to think about the right and left not as so much as right or wrong, mm-hmm. um, you know, good and evil, but Two complementary forces of nature. Think of it like the yin and the yang. You you need these two forces for balance. Yeah. You know, we you need it. You need a horse. You need a jockey. Yeah. You for the so for example, the left would be the horse, the desire to push forward, the primordial, the the, the primitive desire to push forward and change progress. Progress. Yeah. And the jockey is holding him back, saying, "Not so fast. We need to control society." We are changing way too much. Slow it down. So let's get a little bit more into the uh, the survey results. So he basically asked people on the left, people on the right, same series of questions, and those questions would yield what aspect, what component they are most going to emphasize, what they care about most. In their morality. In their morality. And uh, I guess the best way to kind of describe it is a bucket metaphor. So I want you to imagine you have five one-gallon buckets, and that would represent each of the components that we talked about. Sure. We got the harm care, fairness, reciprocity, in-group loyalty, authority, respect, and then lastly, purity, sanctity. Right. Five different buckets. Right. And you have one gallon of water. You have a choice to put in all five, one, two, three, and et cetera. So how I make my decisions is how I spread the water throughout the buckets. Right. And that will indicate how much emphasis you have on that particular component, which one you value over others. All right. And what he found out based on survey results, which is really interesting, is that liberals 
put most, if not all, mm -hmm. in either the harm care and the fairness reciprocity bucket. Yeah, they look at the last three components as not relatively important to their moral morality or their decision making when it comes to um, morals. So you have your gallon gallon of water, and if you're liberal or on the left, you're going to pour fifty percent of that into bucket the, one. Bucket one, fifty percent into mm -hmm. bucket two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the right viewed it very differently. The right thought all five components are equally important and they would equally distribute 20% of their water in every bucket. You know, and it's surprising that we have such different ways of looking at things depending upon what perspectives we're coming from. What is interesting to kind of reiterate though, all components are universally accepted by all human beings. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of emphasis. Where do you emphasize what particular component? So liberals are obviously more narrowly focused on the first two foundations, harm care, fairness, reciprocity, and conservatives. Yeah, they're going to be more fearful of emphasizing one component at the expense of any other. They're worried that if I go too much into fairness, I might be harming my in-group loyalty. I might be harming my authority respect. Now, let's kind of contextualize this by going, again, through each of the components and kind of giving like an actual modern example to show you uh, how someone on the left might you know, interpret it and someone on the right and how they might interpret it. And you might begin to see why we're disagreeing and where this divide might come from on a psychological basis. All right, so harm care. Maybe, all right, think about it this way. Harm care, the refugee crisis we're seeing around the world right now. Okay. All right, so that's probably a good example for the harm care dynamic in terms of how both sides look at it, right? Right, I guess, um, you know, if the issue of whether or not we should let refugees in, the left would kind of look at it as you know, it's the right thing to do. We have to care for others. So okay. their, their harm care foundation would be tapped. We yes. have to care for so, humans, other yeah. human beings. So if that's true, the right would look at it. No, letting them in could be dangerous. Letting them in could not only harm ourselves, but it might harm our own, our own society, right? So their level of emphasizing the harm care as very important, must take, must, you must take care of others or else, they're like, we need to be more careful. Letting them in could harm our own. And we have to kind of note that there's not a right or wrong to looking at this. We try to want to make the point that, you know, it's one topic and two different groups of people are looking at it on a moral level. And they're both legitimate and kind of recognizing the legitimacy in the other is what actually might mitigate the intense partisanship that yeah. we see today. Everyone thinks they're right. Right. So what we're trying to explain is that the two different moral perspectives are important to understand in order to better understand the disagreement between the two sides. So let's look at the second component, uh, fairness and reciprocity. Uh, I guess the best way to illustrate this would be taxes. Like yeah. the, the idea of paying um, into a government and the, the government will use those taxes to fund programs. Yeah, so you, basically an organized society, part of paying, the way I heard it phrased once is taxes are the price to live in an organized society. Right. So the left is going to view this as hey, increasing taxes isn't the worst thing in the world. We're trying to help fund social programs, you know, do those things to help those in need, right? right? The left might look right. at it. Right, it would be, it's what's fair. Because, yeah, it's you fair because we want to look after those that are in need. Right? Or the, those who are in need that maybe might not have had the chance to get to the same point that we are. So Yeah, the programs are necessary to promote fairness. That's a better way of thinking. Right, yeah. and I guess the right would look at it being like, well, increased taxes is not fair. It's unfair because it's a burden. Because 
I'm giving away something and it's not being reciprocated. I'm I mean, not getting yeah, something out. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, uh, they're, they're not looking at it the same way that the left. Right. Their, their fairness reciprocity foundation is being tapped, but they're looking at it as I don't want to be taken advantage of. If I'm giving X amount of dollars to the New York State or the federal government, I'm not seeing that money come back to me. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem to be fair at all. Yeah. Where is this? Where's the uh, reciprocated dollars back to me? That makes sense. Yeah. And the way you have to look at it. For the third component, you know, in-group loyalty. Um, you know, it's a little bit controversial probably. What? Depending upon, you know, the, this, the, the idea I have for this one. Um, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, okay. I know uh, we've been heavy on the sports metaphors yeah, yeah. today, but yeah. Colin Kaepernick. All right. He was a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers a few years ago. He actually led them to the Super Bowl within the last five, six years. But um, last year he was the backup quarterback. And he wanted to try and use his platform. He wanted to try and use it to make a message. He's, this is his wording. He basically thinks that um, it's important to draw an attention to the issue of police brutality in communities of color. So he chose the best way to do this was to sit during the national anthem. And later he decided to kneel during the national anthem to draw attention to it. So how does this have to do with in-group loyalty foundation? <laughs> Think about it this way. All right. Um, if you're on the right. His action was found to be detestable, disloyal. Why? Because the National Anthem is a way to honor those that have fallen for our country. To not stand at attention and put your hand over your heart during the National Anthem, that's basically, you know, sacrilege to these people. Right. You know? right. So if you're on the right side, you're looking at it this way, that he should be loyal to the country that's giving him the opportunity to make millions of dollars playing a sport. And right. it's disrespectful to okay. the military that helps provide that freedom All to right. him. So right. that's why it was such a controversial topic. So I guess the left would interpret his action to be understandable and not necessarily disloyal to the country? Yeah, I don't think because... everyone on the left was like cheerleading Right. It. I don't think universally accepted by the left, but a different perspective. Right. They would look at this not so much as being disloyal, but um, to dissent is to an extent, being loyal. Calling, so, attention, sometimes it can be. calling attention to maybe a, a problem that we have in society is a way of being a loyal American. Yeah, loyalty sometimes is in different forms. Now, if some of you are getting upset right now and angry, uh, that's okay and that's understandable, but you have to understand this is not right or wrong. You really have to try. You have to exercise uh, the act of empathy, really trying to understand the moral framework of the other. It's yeah, easy. You have to put yourself in the shoes of another person. And you I, have to look at it. From their we know it's point. cliche, but we're giving you actual substantiated scholarship to kind of like look at it and actually like base your perception of the other in mm -hmm. the correct manner. I guess the, the, the fourth component of authority and respect. Um, they, they're very similar in group loyalty, authority, respect. It's, they play off one another. Yeah, and I guess like not to go for another sports analogy, uh, maybe we could do something uh, what actually has been passed, um, the Patriot Act. What's uh, that? For those of you who don't know – the Patriot Act was a bill that was signed uh, uh, during post 9-11, during the terrorist attacks, um, to give the government more um, authority in, um, you know, surveilling. Warrantless wiretapping. Wire, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. And it was passed uh, pretty much by the overwhelming majority of the Senate. 97 to 2. People on the left are disagreeing with the Patriot Act. They think, yes, security is important, but we can't sacrifice our basic rights that are given to us in the Bill of Rights just because we're fearful of it. So disagreeing with the Patriot Act, even though it's named Patriot Act, 
disagreeing with it on the left. They view that as a sign of patriotism. And that's a long-standing tradition. It's an American tradition to the right of privacy. And I guess the left would interpret it as we respect authority so much, but we respect right. we respect proper authority. And I think that the Patriot Act oversteps its bounds of authority. Oh, I see what you're saying. You see yes. what I'm saying? That we want we them want to protect us, but not at that cost. Right. Not exactly. at that cost. Right. Where the right is saying, well, we do absolutely respect authority. And the people who are disagreeing with this act, uh, they're willing to put our nation at risk. In the mm -hmm. post-9-11 world, this act is necessary to keep us safe, and we should respect our government's decision. Yeah, and, and some people argue that you know, the Bill of Rights, written you know, more than 200 years ago, maybe we need to look at it a little bit more carefully in the Internet age. Maybe we need to think about what is privacy, what isn't, and what's proper. And but it's, what's interesting in John Haidt's survey results is that the right really tended to um, respect or endorse governmental decisions. That also kind of taps into the in-group loyalty foundation that we talked about. For sure, earlier. for sure. You know, and, and the last one you can look at, the fifth component, right? Purity versus sanctity. And that's, that comes in many forms, right? It's not just, you know, the strict, you need to behave this way, but that peer pressure element we talked about before. Like, think about it this way, going green and just the emphasis on the need to recycle and, you know, take care of the planet, right? <laughs> I mean, if you look at it this way, say you're someone who lives on, uh, who has a viewpoint from the right, okay? You wouldn't be caught dead driving a Prius probably because of the fact that, it's a Prius. <laughs> well, besides that, but what it represents, like um, on the left, they're looking at it as I'm going to help the environment by reducing emissions, and my fellow liberal friends will look at look down on me if I drove some big gas guzzling truck. You know, the, the peer pressure is to behave a certain way, right. to behave with purity, and in the on the left, they look at purity as going green often. Right. Now, modern day terms. Now, I guess with the right, they would be like completely embarrassed for driving a Prius. Yes. You know, because it's not manly and it would be much better to drive a truck. Yeah. Or they're just not buying into that peer pressure structure of, you know, you need to do this to be, you know, doing the right thing. Right. You know what I mean, they don't buy into that. So that shows you the purity sanctity, depending upon the topic, it can, you know, be different depending upon the view. Right. But on the flip side, like Hyde would suggest that the right also has a, a sense of purity. Um, especially with like religious institutions. Sure. The left typically uh, would not find a lot of religious institutions as sacred as uh, those on the right. So because yes, the right focusing on tradition, right. like you talked about earlier, the right focusing on tradition. What's more traditional than you know a religion like Catholicism that's been around for two thousand years? So, wherever you stand on any of these examples, again, I want to reiterate, Mr. Copeland and I want to say it's fine, um, but you need to understand the whole point of this podcast. Yeah. Where is the conversation between the liberal and the conservative? When, when you're talking to someone that is the opposite of you, you have a tendency to get angry, and you have a tendency to judge them and think they're either immoral or there's something like mentally wrong with them. But yeah. instead of thinking it like that, think of it like what, what component, what, what part of the components of our universal moral map Am I not really understanding? You need to recognize the blind spots of your own perspective. So for, for the, for the left-minded students listening, you know, instead of viewing conservatives as cold-hearted individualists, <laughs> try to recognize uh, what they value, that you, you are ignoring when you have conversations with them. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, you have to look at it that way. And I guess from the right, 
you know, view your liberal friends, not as bleeding heart socialists, but recognize that they have a very strong emphasis on certain components of their morals that you don't view as important. And, and emphasizing that viewpoint and understanding, okay, I get why you're so passionate about this, will create a better dialogue. And our hope is that by you know constantly keeping Heights' uh, moral foundations theory in mind, when you do have these conversations, you're not going to look so much at what the other person isn't, but what the other person is. Yeah. And that, my friends, is when common negotiation and collaboration can start. Yeah, you see why the differences, when you're looking at the differences in terms of the root causes, it's not a moral failing of another person. It's just a different perspective. And, you know, with this podcast, as we go forward, we're focusing on trying to use Heights Research, use these five components as a lens for all of our future podcasts. We're going to be trying to go through all of American history, looking at different events and how this may apply. Yeah, like how harm and care can be tapped into this event. Yeah, where's the fairness and reciprocity in any specific topic? What groups are loyal and what groups are not loyal? Yeah, where's the authority and respect component? Who's deferring to authority and who's challenging it? Finally, what is considered sacred in our great society? Yeah. We're also going to invite other members of the St. Anthony's community to participate as well, and it's our hope that we're trying to kind of broaden not only our perspectives in our classroom, but the whole uh, community in general. So we're going to be having a lot of faculty and staff uh, on this podcast, hopefully. Yeah, it should be great. And I mean, part of what makes St. Anthony's great, we always talk about, is our community. So interacting within that community and making sure all views are represented and all views are respected is critical to that. We want to add more to perspectives other than just us two speaking at oh, you for, sure. for about 40 minutes. We are not the experts on anything. We're just here to start the conversation. And additionally, we hope that you out there participate by emailing us at upon upon a hill at gmail.com. We will uh, definitely love to hear from you and maybe even kind of respond to some yeah, of the Yeah, we'll have some have. mailbag episodes where you can just go to a pot upon a hill at gmail.com. And with that, this concludes our first inaugural podcast. Well done, sir. We did it. All right. All right. We will, uh, we will talk to you guys later. All right. Till next time, everyone.